That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Jake, what do you keep in your snack drawer for bad day clergy emergencies? Mm, I don't have a snack drawer. I just walk around the corner and I'll buy some naan bread. Mm-hmm. That's, I can't do that in Waco. I have trail mix. I have those little um, like uh, cookies, Biscoff cookies that you get on Delta Airlines. I have like a whole sleeve of those. Oh, see, um, I would just eat them all. And like, I have some pockies. Yeah, no, it, it, can, it can. I just had I just had more than a more than one serving size of trail mix. Don't ever like actually calculate what a serving size is of trail mix. They were like, oh, it's a healthy snack. You're a fan of you're a fan of trail mix. You know what I also found though interesting about a Waco, Texas? I did not know this until this week. It's the birthplace of Dr. Pepper. Oh my gosh, yes. How could you not know? Baylor University, Dr. Pepper, Chip and Joanna Gaines, all the things. Yeah, there's a Dr. Pepper Museum downtown. And if you were visited, I would take you there. And we I could uh, love. have a Dr. Pepper. I think float. I'd the fattest I ever was when I was drinking like 44 <laughs> ounces of Dr. Pepper on the reg. So, but anyway, it's a good drink. Well, I'll keep uh, that in know, mind just, come Christmas time. far, far more superior than Mr. Pibb. So anyway, do you ever, do you ever have the knockoff Mr. Pibb? <laughs> I've had, I, I know of Mr. Pibb. Uh, you know, well, clearly he's not as good because he hasn't achieved a terminal degree. I mean, he's no doctor. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, he's just a, just a plain old mister. Um, so I went to junior college. Yeah, the uh, has the, associates. The top floor of the Dr. Pepper Museum has the Free Enterprise Institute, and it's all in praise of entrepreneurial capitalism. So, just a little interesting, little interesting thing going on. Jake's making mm. Marxist faces right now. Mm. All right, let's go and jump into the text for the third Sunday in Lent. Mm-hmm. This will be what you are preaching on March sixth, Sunday, March sixth, which is, uh, or sorry, March fifth. That is uh, in Waco. That's like the first weekend of spring break. So maybe or maybe not, you might have a lower Sunday. But it's these are always beautiful readings. Um, collect on fire as ever. But you've got Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Moses in the wilderness still. Uh, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And Christ dying for the ungodly. And then the very famous lengthy but worth every minute uh, story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in the fourth chapter of John's gospel. And the psalm, by the way, is Psalm 95, which if you do morning prayer regularly, you know, is the mm-hmm. Venite and also ref- is referenced, um, the, well, Psalm 95 references the Exodus 17 passage, so that's kind of why it's there. So let's jump in here, Jake. Exodus 17, the wilderness, mm-hmm. the Israelites are journeying. There's no water. They quarrel with Moses, who says, and they say, give us water to drink. Moses says, why mm-hmm. are you busting my chops? Uh, and then they complain, why did you take us out of Egypt? Egypt was the best. And then Moses goes and uh, uh, kind of complains to the Lord, who says, um, 
just hit the rock. And uh, he does. He strikes the rock at Horeb and water comes out of it and people people drink. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the place is then named Massa and Meribah, which means like quarreling and arguing so uh, and testing. So that's the story. What would you say about it? Yeah, well, I would say that um, Israel is just like all of us. Um, there is, if you follow the book of Exodus, chapters 15, 16, and 17, um, the idea of unbelief is put before us three times in a row. And, uh, and I think one of the things that's being taught here in the book of Exodus, which relates to every human being, is how uh, notoriously short our human memory actually is. Uh, when it comes to recalling God's tremendous provision, if you remember, like he's provided everything for them. He's split the, wa- the, the Red Sea in two. He has um, provided uh, uh, manna. He's provided quail. And now uh, there is water. But uh, the, the point is, is that our natural inclination is not to faith. But especially when things get difficult, our natural inclination is to unbelief which leads us to quarrel with one another and uh, ultimately uh, test uh, God. Mm. And um, I think that, you know, and we we experience that all the time in our own lives, even in our own wilderness journeys. And uh, while we may not cry out necessarily for bread or water, we grumble, we quarrel. Uh, There's moments of distrust and total impatience. I mean, I'm living this like right now as I wait for uh, a, a, a what's called a warden's phone for my third and fourth floor. And it's just like, you know, you're just like, what? this isn't fair, the, you know, and it leads to all sorts of unbelief. But the good news of the gospel in this particular passage is that God's response to our unbelief is never what we think it should or would be. Uh, the good news is that God deals with Israel's fear uh, by providing more grace. Mm. And what he does is the reason why he tells Moses to take all of these elders with him is that it's a public display of uh, God's uh, of God's provision. He wants everybody to take notice, and um, you know, and with uh, everybody looking, he takes that staff, the very staff that turned water into blood on the Nile, and uh, he turns uh, he turns a, a like a big spitting a rock starts spitting giant fountain, and uh, and it's. God provides for us the same way. He always does. He provides for that he always does. He provides us with Christ. And you know, Paul tells us that this is Christ in uh, in in his letter to the Corinthians, but he continues to provide for us, forgiving us, feeding us, refreshing us for the long journey ahead. And so, and just like Jesus promises, whoever drinks from him uh, will never be thirsty. And so that's uh I think that's the good news of this particular passage. Yeah, it's incredible grace to to um, it, it shows human beings some of their their worst in mm-hmm. that uh, they have seen they they were the ones who were enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. They cried out to God, "Send us a deliverer." God heard their cry, provided Moses, miraculously got them out from under the oppressive heel of this great world power and great military might. They had no chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they were like a little bug in the face of a giant and the giant should have squished them, but God fought for them. And so they've, and then they, they turn this back on Moses and they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? It's like, no, 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 mm-hmm. no, no. It's, it's sort of like, did God really say, you know, mm-hmm. t- did, that's exactly what it's, it is. Um, it's, they prayed, 
God answered, got them out of their situation, and then then they find some challenge along the way, and they're like, "Oh, God has abandoned us," and they blame Moses. And this is the thing when 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 we get in a bad situation, we often want to blame someone other than ourselves. Um, we have short memories, as you said. I, it just illustrates how so many of us operate, um, and we also assume the worst of people. Like, did you bring us out here to kill our children and our livestock with thirst? And mm-hmm. Moses's prayer is not really that good. It's like this exasperated cry, what shall I do with this people? So the people don't pray, they complain. Moses doesn't even really pray and remember like, God, you have called us and you've been faithful. It's none of that. It's like bad prayers all around. And God <laughs> still gives this great mercy. And so I think you know, everybody in the congregation to which you preach is going to feel um, uh could identify a little bit of like, how did I get here? Why am I in this bad situation? Mm-hmm. And they're not, and they, and you know, there's so much bad teaching about you got to have faith and you got to pray in this right way and all this, and then God yeah. will give you what you want. And again, another example in the Bible of people not doing very good in their whole prayer life, and yet God's still having mercy and saving them anyway. So I think it's it's a beautiful, powerful thing. And by the way, uh, we know from the New Testament. Uh, that it is the tradition of the church that this rock is Christ on some. It's mm-hmm. a type of Christ. So you strike the rock. You come with your bad prayers, your sinful heart, your petty attitude, your small mind, your weak faith. You hit the rock. You know, again, Christ is crucified. We, we smash him with all of our stuff, and this living water pours out. And so that's what's happening here. And um, it's it's another arrow pointing to Christ. And And I think... For you, minister of the gospel, who's listening to this, your job, like Moses, is to go and strike the rock. Your job is to is to point the people to Christ once again every Sunday, and say um, He is the one crucified and risen for us, and let that living water gush out. Um, I've been just listening to other sermons recently, and I I know I've got to tread carefully. I don't think I've listened to any sermons of people who listen to this podcast. I've just been sort of. I'm always curious how other people preach and preach passages that, that we've talked about on this podcast. Um, and there's just a lot of people who are hearing sermons that don't end with this living water gushing forth. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. end with um, to-do lists uh, mm-hmm. or, or vague stories uh, that don't yeah. really connect to suffering people. So make sure you hit that rock. Uh, tell people um, that, uh, that Christ died for them. So anyways, here I'm stopping yeah. my ranting. You're That's already, good. I'm not preaching to you, Jake. You already know all this. <laughs> I need a preacher as well. So, but uh, then we come to our next uh, next uh, epistle passage, which is Romans chapter five, verses one through eleven. I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, you just you could just get in the pulpit, read that, and sit down. It's you know that good. But don't. I know. Don't do that. Do you, I remember there was a classmate of ours in seminary? I don't know if he was a classmate of yours, but. Uh, he would always come and like sometimes when he wouldn't, uh, he, it was clear he hadn't prepared his chapel sermon. So he would just be like, you know, there, what more could I add? Let's mm. just read this text again. And he mm. would read it again and then sit down and everybody would be like, yeah. so, yeah. I I heard of a clergy person just reading. Well, I mean, this is sort of famous. This was a, somebody who'd read just a Dr. Seuss book, but sometimes he'd get up and just read a poem. And it's like, no, like t- tell people the gospel don't make them figure it out through some deep metaphorical thing that you thought was interesting anyways um so let's talk about romans yeah and how we preach romans 5 
this is Paul beginning with that great verse 1. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and he goes on to talk about uh, the fact that we have suffering, uh, and that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope, hope, etc., um, and then this amazing line in verse six, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then mm-hmm. verse eight, the hits just keep on coming. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We've been reconciled to God through the death of, of uh, Christ. So we boast only through our Lord Jesus Christ, not ourselves. So it's mm-hmm. ground zero for justification by faith, that you are loved, that you didn't do anything to earn the grace of God. Um, mm-hmm. How do you make something like this come alive for the people besides reading poetry, Jake? <laughs> well, I think that that's a, that's a big thing that's coming across here. You know, I think you can tell people, just open this right up. I mean, this is, one of the, this is the heart of the gospel. Uh, you know, and you can tell people who Christ is and, uh, and tell them who you are, like who we are, sinners, who Christ is, your Savior, who we are, sinners, and what Christ has done for us. Uh, well, he, by laying his life down, has made us the righteousness of God. And, uh, and you know, and, and the, the important thing is, is right here, and this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, we have God's agenda for the whole world. Mm. We have, if you will, uh, what God has dreamed and what he has made a reality, um, uh, what he has made re- a reality in the death and resurrection and ascension of his son. And uh, that, uh, that is that Christ should come and die for the ungodly, for sinners, for his enemies. And that in his death, we are totally justified before God. And essentially, I mean, this is, this is basics and this is so good. This is the milk and the meat. Mm. What this means is, is that his blood covers you. I mean, that is good news. You're going to have a lot of people coming in. I mean, all sorts of trouble. And the last thing, as you were saying, they need to do is a to-do list. This is nothing more than grace rolling down hills. Uh, that God, when God looks on you, and bring it up, and here's where you can hit all sorts of illustrations, because people have come in, they've had a big fight with their wife, their kids don't want to be there, and they had a hard time getting there, they're having a hard time at their job, you know, maybe they're involved in something that they wouldn't tell you about, but what the good news of the gospel here is that God does not see your sin anymore, but he sees the blood of his son. Uh, that perfect life in your place. And even though your sins may be great, that blood is greater. And he becomes your sin in his death. And by his blood, you are declared righteous, innocent, holy, and blameless before God. This right here is the heart of substitutionary atonement. And I know it gets a little tricky in some places, but you know that is the foundation that holds every other theory of atonement uh, together. You know what I mean? Like there are other theories and uh, they are all true and they all make sense in some way. But this, my need for a substitute. The fact of the matter is, is that most people are not laying up in their bed at night wondering what their purpose is. Mm. Nobody's at like three in the morning like, oh, I'm wondering, you know, I wonder what my purpose is. A lot of people may be thinking about that when they're sitting at a stoplight. You know, in New York, they're waiting for the J train and they're smoking a cigarette and they're like, oh, no, what, what, what am I here for? Nobody's really, th- that's not keeping people up at night. What's keeping people up at night is that great idea that Bugs Bunny once asked. Hmm. Um, maybe I should have made a left turn in Albuquerque. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> if only I would have done this differently. If only I would have done that, then things would be different. Yeah. 
And it is that difference that you feel. I mean, that is the accusation. Mm. And what this is saying is, is that uh, whether you made a left or a right turn in Albuquerque, um, Jesus is meeting you right there. And uh, while you were an enemy, you have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. Yeah. And, and I, so how much more shall you be saved by his life? Yeah. And I, I think um, one of the things that I would, um, I think, talk about if I were preaching, just because it is in the season of Lent, um, is to yeah. mention and get to the fact that this is, this is not something that is, a, I mean, for many people, it does feel like a one-time event at some point in their life when they came to faith or when they had a spiritual awakening. But this is, in some sense, as we live out as Christians, something that we come back to again and again um, as our uh, um, mentor Paul Zoll used to talk about the, um, un, um, like the unconverted parts of the human heart. And so I think there is an invitation here. Um, in this Lenten season, to invite people to realize that they actually are ungodly. They're actually sinners. Um, to get honest and real with that in and of themselves, um, to look in the mirror. Uh, and um, I, I think so often sin can be abstract and people are so compartmentalized in their brains. Many people are good at having like 80% of their life, which is sort of on the up and up at 10% or 20% or 2% or some thing, some part that's not, and you spend a lot of time just not looking at that. Um, we are really good at, at not taking a good hard look at ourselves sometimes and excusing behaviors or thought patterns or whatever. So I think, you know, because it's Lent, should the spirit lead and you were preaching this passage, you could talk about, um, and give examples of what sinfulness is like. Get the, um, uh, Ira Glass on one episode of This American Life talks about a thing where he was sitting at his computer. Uh, there was a knock at the doorbell, like a knock at the door, and it was a delivery person bringing a package. And his wife was in her pajamas, and she didn't want to answer the door because she was in her pajamas. And he said, no, you look fine. Go ahead and answer the door. And he talks about how she really, like, it didn't matter whether she, he thought she looked fine or not. She was uncomfortable as just a nice person, a human being. He should have just gotten up and gotten the package. He wasn't, like, you know, defusing a time bomb or something uh, that he couldn't actually get up and, and help her. Um, but his mind sort of gave him the rationalizations. And he talks, and he's not, from what I can tell, a very religious person, but he just talks about, like, that I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want to do what I want to do, and I can give you a justification of why it's fine for me to do what I want to do and not what you want. Like that part of human beings, the, um, the, the part where parents judge their children, uh, whether it's in athletics or academics, um, as opposed to encouraging them, the, the way you lose your temper to somebody who you love and have made vows to cherish, all these sorts of things, whatever examples you want to give to say nothing of systemic racism and oppression and all kinds of things in the world. But like to get specific about things and say like, look, we're not just like hypothetical sinners. We are sinners. We are ungodly. And Jesus should absolutely not have died for us. If God was any sort of self-respecting God, he would not have done this for us. But to get sort of nitty gritty into that, invite people to look in the mirror, see themselves and say that, yes, this is the amazing love of God for actual sinners. Um, I wish it was for fake sinners, but it was for real sinners. And I don't like real sinners. Um, I don't like that I'm a real sinner. But that's actually how God works. And so uh, don't, by the way, make, don't only focus on verses uh, three and 
for basically trying to make some Aristotelian chain to like behavior and character improvement, like the steps to getting better. Because that rips it out of context and misses the whole thing. What he basically is saying is, when you suffer in Christ, it's not because God doesn't love you. And his whole thing, I know God loves you because while you were a sinner, God died for you and loves you so much. So just know that this ongoing process of suffering in your life is part of somehow in God's economy, something that's supposed to wear off some of your edges and and uh, turn you into a person who's more, even more open to the grace of God. This is not some self-improvement mm. plan. So don't make this passage about that. Make it about <clears throat> Christ dying for the ungodly, which is you and me, and we really are ungodly. Yeah, that's good. And say, and you know, you might if if you're in the Episcopal context or some other liturgical context. Uh, what's up, ACNA brethren slash Lutherans uh, slash some Methodists? If you um, if you have a time of confession, you might even in your sermon or maybe as you bid the confession say, you know, the rubrics allow for a moment of silence before we confess. And I want to encourage you to enter into that moment of silence and just. You know, take some time and think about what is some of the ungodly stuff in your life. Stuff where you have not loved others, where you have exploited others, where you have let your temper dominate things, where you've wanted to be in power over others. All those sorts of things um, uh, to to just make that a little bit more real. It's Lent, so lean into it. Yeah. So we move into John chapter 4. Long, amazing story about... An encounter that Jesus has with this Samaritan with a real woman sinner. at the well, a real <laughs> sinner, um, and um, and just to be fair, she has had a lot of husbands. It says, but mm-hmm. um, for a woman in the ancient Near East, and it was as James Brown said, uh, not even that ancient. This is kind of more almost just a little bit before modern times, Roman Empire. We still walk on their roads and visit their uh, buildings. Um, in this time. If a woman had been divorced at some point, because maybe her husband was not a nice guy, she had no legal recourse. But what I'm saying is, some people kind of portray this as like this is this is some kind of um, um, loose woman, uh, so to speak, um, mm. and uh, that's actually not in the text. It's she's, she's have seven husbands or five husbands, and she's with a guy now that she's not married to. But it's it's not like she's been going to divorce court time after time, like Mm -hmm. women could not divorce men. Only men could divorce women. And um, so whatever may be going on, I'm not trying to say she's some sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, Mother Teresa kind of figure, but uh, because that's the most righteous person there ever could be. But um, just saying that, like, the point here is that she, like all of us, is a sinner, but she's also someone who's known great pain and trauma, and she's hiding. That's the point. Like, there's a part of her life she doesn't want him to see because there's some shame associated with it. And there's a lot we could say about this. And some people will want to make it about Jesus's embrace of the other, of people who are different, his, his clear, like sort of feminist impulse to treat a woman like a human being, <laughs> the people, and which is, I mean, I, that's great. It's yeah. true. And it's real. And like, this is so countercultural and boundary breaking for him. Um, and also as it is for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan and all that stuff is in this passage. But if you just preach this, I think, in my opinion, if we just preach it as Jesus is for the other, ethnically other, gender other, um, and you don't, yeah, if you don't get it to the fact that as far as God is concerned, you are an other because you are a sinner, you're ungodly, as Paul said. And so the message here for you, person in the pew, of whatever gender or ethnicity or background or story or whatever, 
Jesus knows everything you have done, like this woman says about her conversation with him, and loves you. Like this mm. is what so this is why the woman runs to tell everybody she knows. Um, here's someone who knew everything about me and still loved me, um, and is the Messiah. And then all, so he stays, and all these people come to faith. So this the, that's what I would make it about. That's and that's what I would say. Well, I would I would hit on that idea, of like maybe build like jump this out uh, from Romans. You know that um, uh, Christ dies for the ungodly. Christ dies for the sinner. However, that's not what the world tells you to do. Uh, the world tells you that um, Christ actually dies for those who really work at it. Um, you know, God is happy with those who help themselves. And, uh, and that's how the world thinks God operates. And I don't know if you've ever been to a third world country. I, mean, I remember when I was in Uganda. I mean, getting water is hard, hard work in that context. I mean, you've got to go down with jugs and then you got to get the water, you got to lug it all back, and those jugs are just crazy heavy. And um, and then you got to treat the water. I mean, it's 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 hard work. I remember I was backpacking one time, and we ran out of water, and the closest spring was a half a mile off the trail. Mm. And uh, you know, and we had to walk down and get it and lug it all back. I mean, just watch Mad Max Fury Road sometime. I mean, that'll tell you how important water is or dune or any of that and so water is something you got to work at you have to earn it um you know it's hard work and you got to work at it in order to drink and then the next day you're thirsty again Um, and that's how actually the law works that's how uh, trying to get righteousness on your own works it promises to quench your thirst for a second uh, but um you know and everything's going great until it doesn't you know, um, you seem really saintly until you don't anymore. Mm. And, uh, and that's the problem. Uh, the thirst for righteousness is a thirst that ultimately the law cannot quench. And, you know, and she's gone from relationship to relationship. Heck, she's a Samaritan and there she is all by herself. And so her going down and getting water is an illustration all by herself in the heat of the day. You know what I mean? Because ladies, if you ever go to Uganda, they get they, they get the water early in the morning and they get the water uh, or late at night. Same with like if you go to a desert place, I'm sure like El Paso or my hometown Yuma, man, they like you go grocery shopping in the cool of the day, not in the middle of it. So she's there and realizing that like the law can only get you so far and it's left her thirsty. And this is what Jesus does. He comes in and he diagnoses her. And he's like, man, you're still thirsty. You're always going to be thirsty. And, uh, and this is the problem with that type of spirituality. Mm-hmm. The cure that is taught and offered from pulpit to pulpit is always wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, that we mix it up with Jesus and the law and we're like, yeah, 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 definitely. Just try harder. Just try yeah. harder. And uh, here's, here's the thing. I mean, the cure for spiritual thirst is never like do more. But rather, it's Jesus in his gospel alone. Uh, The good news of Jesus' blood shed for the Samaritan woman. The good news of Jesus' blood shed for you that fills our baptismal fonts. And uh, and in that water makes living promises from God that declares God and Jesus does not come to shame or condemn you. Or even now have you try and get your own water. But instead... God and Jesus has redeemed your past like that lady, present and future. He's covered you with his righteousness. He's made you holy. And despite your struggles through water, uh, he's rescued you from the wilderness of sin and death, which ties back into 
uh, our Exodus reading, and mm. uh, and that's the thing, is that um, is that Jesus doesn't give a rip about our ethnicities. He doesn't give a rip about our gender or identities or anything like that. He has come so that you might stop striving for your own identity and drink deeply from the gospel, the good news of the water that when you're touched by that will never thirst again. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is me. Sometimes I, I, I get nervous, Jake, when you get passion. I'm, and I'm someone who needs everybody to like me, unlike you. And so when you say God doesn't care about our identities, sometimes I get nervous like somebody's. You know what I mean? Like in the sense I of know, that, like it's like I the know. main thing. And think, yeah. And that's so just, the problem. That's, the, that's actually the, the problem. Yeah, I, I think, know, but I'm going to say it. Like it's just, I mean, that is like a big, that's a big issue. Leave your identity at the door. When you walk through those red doors, which represent the blood of Christ and pass through the font, he shares his identity with no one else. Right. And uh, he has given you an identity that declares you righteous and makes you brand new and that you might live fully into who he is and who he said about you. That's right. Not what the world has said about that's you. Right. The, the, that's, that's the problem with the Samaritan woman. She was living with what the world had said about her yeah. and what you know she thought. And I mean, that is crushing. Our own identities end in death. What we need is an identity apart from ourselves that brings us from death into everlasting life, which yeah. only the gospel can give. And, and if I, that came out of pulpits, people would just freaking flock to the church right yeah. now. Yeah, I think uh, most preachers, I think that's right. The the, the kind of, because identity can be a loaded word these days, but basically all of these are things um, either internal or external to us that we think define us. And there are some beautiful things about your identity, your culture, your background. Oh, of course. You know, and so I, you know, this is my little disclaimer and caveat, and please don't unsubscribe. But, uh, <laughs> but in terms of saying that those things are like, the most important ultimate thing about you that will define you for all eternity, that is not true. And your value comes in the fact that you're a beloved child of God, reconciled to God in Christ. And he, as we say in the Eucharistic liturgy, in him and with him and through him in the unity of the Holy Spirit, like that's, that's who we are. And keeping that front and center, as opposed to being distracted by all the other things. And I'm as guilty as the next guy, like, you know, um, we're in the process where in a few years we might have to get another car. And I am like all about what does my car say about me? That is bull hockey. I mean, uh, all, yeah, so many little ways that we try to, uh, signal our identity or shape our identity or curate our identity online and our brand and all that stuff. All that's not going to be a hill, hill of beans, uh, in the eschaton and mm. the end time. So, uh, can I just I, yeah. can I just say I mean if you do get a Genesis I hope you have a good Job, <laughs> but um uh, the, here's the thing here's the thing with, with, with Christianity Christianity and identity is that Christianity when it's been at its best and has baptized a culture has gone in and enhanced that identity and brought out the very best of it not erased it you know, not erased it but like accentuated it. Uh, when Christianity is uh, baptized by the culture, though, it becomes like everything else. 
and quickly tries to make everybody exactly the same. Mm. Um, and this is why um, I'm very, very leery about, well, I'll just leave it. I'm going to leave it there. So, and people Don't can email me and spicy. ask me what I was thinking later. So anyway, um, I was about to spray some pepper on this thing, but anyway, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> we've, um, we've already, we've said a lot. Um, yeah, it's I think 30 minutes. We're I do, I do want to just close with a little personal illustration from my own life of what I think you want your hearers to, to feel as they're leaving church. I was on a run um, on oh, Monday, and I was listening to Lizzo's album special, uh, Houstonian and flautist and um, singer and performing artist Lizzo. And she, um, and this is super, this, to me, like I was so- like, I love I, her. She's great. My I could kids sort of look at too. myself on the outside. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm having this moment because- she in the song special which is the title track of the album yeah. she talks about waking up and p- feeling judged and um in the chorus she says over and over in case nobody told you today you're special mm. uh well i'll always love you the same you're mm. broken but damn you're still perfect and don't put too much theological weight on perfect you know what she's saying yeah um, you're special over and over you're special i'm running and i'm i'm feeling like in a sense um like I'm being told that I have value and that I am loved despite my flaws and brokenness. And I'm, I was glad I was sweating profusely so you couldn't see the tears, but I like started to tear up from this um, because I need to hear the gospel too. And so what Paul is saying in the Romans reading that God in Christ dies for the ungodly, um, it's you're special. Uh, in other yes. words, you're this, that's secular language for saying you are loved, you are seen and you're loved. You're in your, so eternally valuable in the eyes of God, mm-hmm. and so um, make. Sh- I, I would just say, yeah, if, if if that connects to you at all, listener, someone who needs to hear that you are loved and that you're special and you're okay uh, with all your flaws and your history and your past, mm-hmm. all that. Um, that you're if if that is meaningful to you, then your congregation needs to hear that. And they need to hear that every Sunday, and um, so good. this episode Can I brought to you by Hyundai and Lizzo. Yeah, please. What? Just um, so this, you're special, absolutely, and it's most certainly no abstraction. It's not just "Hey, you're okay. I'm okay. You're all special." Right. Uh, the declaration that you are special is real because it has been signed, sealed, delivered in the blood of the Son of Man. Amen. And so um, you are covered in that, and you are that special that He would lay His life down for you. Yeah. If God, died, it's not abstract. That's beautiful. It's not. It's not your special because of something you bring to the table, although you or bring many valuable too. things to the table. But if you're being judged on that, then there's a lot of things about you that are not so special. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you are special because God delights in you so much so that mm-hmm. he gives his life for you. So, um, um, so rest in that and Amen. do that. Okay. Well, Praise the Lord. Until, uh, That's a good episode. Yeah, I think, I think so. I'll, I'll give us yeah. – uh, I think, you know. Jake, you're special. This was a special episode. <laughs> a very special Lizzo episode. <laughs> All right, until then, till then, four. God bless and uh, preach Bye. the gospel. Hang in there. Somebody's looking. Somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know, we crucified him, buried him, but three days later, well, the stone got rolled away. And yes, Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. 
Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll. You see-